Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast today on the pod. With Nordstrom shuttering all its Canadian stores, what impact will the shutdown have on the revitalization of Granville Street? Plus, even though City Hall employees have union representation, benefits, and a pension, why are activists demanding the City of Vancouver participate in a living wage pledge? Plus, we look at the impact climate change is having on biodiversity and wildlife in BC. And are the Vancouver Canucks about to change their logo? We investigate. That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Let's begin with the closures of Nordstrom's. Now, as we reported yesterday during the show, the American chain will be shutting all 13 of its stores in Canada by late June. Uh, Its online store uh, ceased operation late yesterday. Now, Nordstrom's has said that they never made money in Canada, and its departure comes just eight years after Target left our country in a hasty and uh, expensive retreat. Now, the 230,000-square-foot retail space is likely too big for one entity, and as we all know, closures of such large retailers can have widespread and lasting impacts on the local community. Uh, now, think of the foot tra- traffic alone here in downtown Vancouver. I was just out there yesterday, busy, busy, busy street, and uh, this, of course, announcement comes just weeks after the city of Vancouver began discussions to revitalize and transform the historic Granville Strip, home to some of the city's most recognizable and iconic theatres and buildings. So joining me now to discuss the departure of Nordstrom's and the future of the Granville Strip is Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young. Sarah, welcome. Hi, good afternoon, Jess. Uh, we were talking about a little of this uh, before we went on air, but uh, first of all, just your thoughts on the news. Uh, what, was, what were your thoughts when you heard? Well, my first thought was, oh, no. Um, it's disappointing, um, obviously. Um, I think as a resident uh, in the city, because uh, it was exciting uh, to see brand new retail. And, you know, Nordstrom's has a fantastic reputation for uh, offerings and customer service. So, um, but then, you know, wearing my council hat, my first thought was, we just started this planning process to um, expedite moving forward with the revitalization of the Granville Entertainment District and a chance to build on what we had there. So obviously this is a blow. Um, with respect to that, but um, I think if anything, it underscores the opportunity that we have to, and I think hopefully put the the impetus on really moving that work forward. Mm-hmm. Um, does it concern you that business like that can't make money in downtown Vancouver? Well, I mean, this isn't unique, as you said, to Vancouver. They're closing all their stores in Canada, um, and so you know, it, it's. I'm hearing some of the. Uh, kind of analysts that are saying, well, was it COVID? Is it the U.S. model uh, coming into Canada? Uh, Who knows? It's probably a combination of both of them. Um, And yes, you want to see retail be successful. Um, I am buoyed up by looking at uh, longstanding Canadian-based retailers like Hudson's Bay, who are slated to and have a great proposal just a block south at Georgia and Granville to revitalize their iconic building. Mm -hmm. So some heritage restoration, but a complete gut of the inside to create a new... um, kind of a new elevated shopping experience mm-hmm. um, with commercial above. Um, and I think if we can create an environment where we can support the Canadian companies as well as local retail, um, I think that that's probably what the landscape looks like for us. So let's just uh, uh, walk uh, walk the listeners a little bit through in regards to the process that has started for Granville Street and, and what's going to happen over the next little while. Yeah, so what council approved for the Granville Entertainment District revitalization for a three-block radius south to Helmican uh, is to an 18-month planning program. Um, and to get that underway so that we have a defined vision for the street because the current zoning is restrictive um, and doesn't necessarily allow a lot of revitalization of the area. But what we also sent was some really clear signals that we know what some of those uses um, should be, such as hotels. Uh, Cities desperately in need of hotels. We've got a shortage of hotel rooms. New study coming out from Destination Vancouver that really speaks to the economic loss of that. I'm hearing about like we're short 1,500 hotels downtown or something like that. Yeah, we're short 1,500 rooms Rooms, um, uh, on an annual basis. And uh, that's really significant because 
because that actually precludes, I come from the tourism industry. My background was the director of marketing at Destination Vancouver for a number of years. And I can tell you that um, our opportunity to bid on world events like FIFA to hold large conferences and just tourism in general um, is really compromised. If we're becoming, the analogy for hotels is that our, our average rates are becoming so expensive and our occupancy is so high if you can get a room. It's exactly like the housing sector because we do not have enough supply. And that has a huge knock-on effect. That means people are not, we don't have those tourists spending in the restaurants. Um, they're not spending in the in the shops, in the retail. Um, and it's, you only sort of a certain type of tourist can afford to come to the city. So I, that's one of the things that we did with the Granville Entertainment District to say, if there are hotel proposals, let's let them come forward now because it just makes common sense that that's where a great place to put hotel uses is right in the heart of downtown Vancouver in your historic entertainment district where people can have access to all those experiences. Um, and so let's keep that moving at the same time. You said that there was restrictive zoning. What do you mean by that? Well, let's look at the Hunter Granville proposal, for example, uh, which includes the historic Commodore, and it's got a number of retail there. Yep. And so they would have had to go for a rezoning process, but there was no um, overarching policy that actually allowed them to come forward with a proposal to say, we want to revitalize that district, uh, respect the heritage and keep the facades, revitalize the Commodore so that uh, they can load in and load out and hold more shows, so supporting the music sector, getting more shows coming in on a regular basis. Um, and we want to put office above. And they said there's no policy pathway for them to do that um, because they were limited in terms of the density. Um, and so they're essentially stuck. And so that's why we said we need a planning process there. But it's also why council identified that specific proposal as having some real mer merit to revitalizing the area and asked staff to entertain that one and let that go forward uh, to rezoning um, while, again, while planning. Because... These things only make sense. Like they're going to bring, you know, it supports music and culture. It brings in office workers during the day. It would be revitalized heritage and retail. So we're trying to really keep things moving at the same time while we're planning. Why the opposition to density? Can you explain that to me historically? Is it, is it is the amount of light that comes down on the street that we're concerned about? What, yeah, what? part of it was light. I think part of it was a vision to have this sort of lower height, more human scale friendly uh, type of building uh, environment for people that were in that sort of, so it gives that kind of neighborhood high street concept. Mm -hmm. um, but the challenge is that you're not, the economics don't necessarily work and you're not necessarily bringing the uses in. And I think there's also a desire to evolve Granville Street from just being the nighttime nightclub destination that it was in the past and actually diversify so it can become a kind of, during the day, great place to be, during the night, um, family-friendly as well as clubs. You're seeing people move away from nightclubs. They're, they enjoy brew pubs. They're enjoying different kinds of experiences now. You've got uh, the Cineplex that's uh, turning into a whole games concept there. So um, I think you're really seeing that customer shift um, on the street, and so that's what it, that's what it enables. Uh, as as a consumer, let's put 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 Sarah Kirby on the politician aside just for a moment. But as a consumer, like, it, it, what's what's Nordstrom's loss mean for you? Is it is it something we just get over, move on? Uh, there's plenty of other places to shop. We shop online now. Or do you think something fundamentally important has been lost in the city? I think something important has been lost. I walked through it on my way over here uh, in studio uh -huh. to join you, um, and it was busy. It was hopping today. Um, probably a lot of people wanted to go after the announcement. I, I'm, I'm guessing, maybe thinking there's going to be some sales. But it f felt like Vancouver suddenly was had been noticed and had arrived when you have someone like Nordstrom that wanted to come in, and it creates some enthusiasm and excitement. And I think that it's the same as the restaurant sector. Like Vancouver's got, I think, some of the highest per capita uh, number of restaurants per capita in the country. Um, and it's exciting. It's why we have a great food scene. There's lots of great places. Now I will say a rising tide floats all boats, not about the competition. And so you, you feel like you're losing some of that vibe 
um, and some of that energy. But that's why I'm really passionate about seeing Granville Street come back because it's got such a great history. Mm-hmm. Remember all the great neon signs? Um, you know, everybody's got a memory of when they went down there and they either were at a certain club, saw a show with the Commodore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you want to bring that back. Let's go to Julia in Surrey. Hi, Julia. Oh, hi, Joho. I love your show and I love how you always address me things that actually matter to Canadians. Thank you so much. I certainly give, I get an A for effort. I'm not sure for achievement, but we do try our best, all of us here at the show. Thank you so much for your kind words. What's on your mind? Well, uh, you know, my daughter yesterday was in Granville. She was having a job event. And as she was leaving the place, a stabbing happened right in Granville. So I believe for Vancouver Council, they throw all these beautiful plants. They have to come down to earth and see the reality that we Canadians are living. They have drawn this city to the whole, and it's very sad and disappointing that we cannot, we're losing Nostrum, and what she said doesn't even make sense. Sorry, she, she was... These business, businesses are taking for shoplifting, vandalism, like sooner or later, the economy of any business. Okay. Well, thank you for your call, Julia. I appreciate that. I think she was referring to vandalism uh, in the Granville Strip. Uh, I mean, this is an ongoing issue, and we've, we've focused on it quite a bit on, on, on this show and other shows here on CKNW. Uh, do you think things are getting better now, or do you think there's still going to be, we need more time in regards to just getting more police on the ground? Well, yeah, I think uh, to Julia's point, public safety is a huge uh, concern and it certainly was in the last election. Um, and we got elected, no uh, surprise there, on a promise to fund 100 new police officers along with 100 mental health nurses. Um, and that recruiting is underway for the VPD. So you are going to see more folks out and about. We're hearing it from different communities. I you know, was just in Chinatown this morning and I hear it from folks that... Um, they are seeing more officers that are deployed. I know that uh, the VPD has a special metro team that they're using now. Um, and so they're trying to deploy officers to hot areas where they feel they need to have that presence. And that seems to be having a positive impact. But I, I hear, Julia, it's, uh, it's concerning when you're, you know, a member of your family or daughter is close to an incident. I was downtown last night, mm-hmm. um, pretty close to there around that time myself. Um, uh, and I understand it wasn't a threat to the public. It was a couple of individuals who knew each other. Um, but yeah, public safety is, a, is an important issue. I sometimes wonder, just as a six foot one male walking downtown, uh, and a couple times where, and I've you know having covered war zones, I think I have a high threshold for uh, situational awareness and and being being aware of what's going on. But I sometimes wonder, as a woman walking downtown, uh, whether it's Gravel Street or other locations, that you know, I'm, I, maybe it is COVID. I don't know what it is, and it's hard to articulate. But it, I, I just uh, I feel sorry for women sometimes walking downtown, just because of we've allowed it to get to a point where they don't feel safe. And there's something fundamentally wrong for a city in a G7 nation that we've got to that point. And I don't pretend to have the answers, but it, it is like if, if, you know, if I know my wife was walking downtown, I'd, I'd go out of my way to make sure, when are you going? Where are you going to be? And, and look, it's in most cases it is safe, but sometimes I wonder, uh, Sarah, that it's still a challenge downtown for, for safety and the, and a view and perception of safety when you're walking. Around. Yeah. And, and I think that's why having visible um, police presence on the street is important. Um, and I think as, as women, we've all grown up but intuitively, like you are aware of your surroundings in a different way than I think men are. Um, but I also think too, positive place making, like what we're talking about, revitalizing Granville Street, mm-hmm. having energy there. Like when we had the Granville Promenade that we were piloting, where we shut down the street on weekends in the summer, mm-hmm. uh, it was like a different street. The energy was amazing. There were families down there, there was live entertainment going and you could just feel the energy. And so I think it's investing in sort of um, public space 
spaces, festivals, things that, you know, bring crowds and, you know, positive energy and people together, um, mm-hmm. as well as public safety. They work together. Let's go to Alan in Campbell River. Hi, Alan. Hi there. Thanks for calling. I, you're, you're, you're not in downtown Vancouver, but I, I'm always amazed at how people are engaged in the city and, and, and safety issues and retail and all those types of things. What's on your mind? Well, I, I lived, uh, I just moved here five years ago, so I used to live over on the mainland there. But mm-hmm. my thought is uh, it's big enough space, turn it into an indoor go kart track with uh, food fairs, you know, uh, arcades and that, like a party place. And go electric carts so you get all the subsidies from the city and 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 no one would complain about it. So you wanted to be a full entertainment, uh, 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 I guess, retail outlet. Yes, yeah. Bring people in for the for the fun. I mean, you know. Yeah, I mean, what, I, what else I, in Vancouver can you do for fun? You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think you're a good point. That's that's uh, you see some of those in the suburbs, certainly the entertainment sto- uh, places that uh, you know I used to take my kid to, uh, my son well, at uh, a young age. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I never, you know, I, I didn't think of it that way. Two hundred thirty thousand square feet. I guess you could put a go kart on the first floor. Uh, I love oh, that yeah, creature. Yeah, I was going to say, Alan, I love the creativity. It is the Granville Entertainment District, so you're definitely bringing the entertainment to it. That, that is part and, of it. And I, bring a whole new class of people in. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think partially, I think he raises a very good point. I know I talked about High Street and, and the fact that it brings in the foot traffic and all that. You also want downtown to be accessible for everyone, all walks of life. I, I guess partially, we've kind of... Um, almost uh, boxed ourselves in to a certain degree in regards to our development. You've talked about zoning not fitting. Uh, Only certain things work in downtown. And the department stores have had challenges in other cities as well and continue to in a a very vastly changed retail market. I guess that, at the end of it, my final question is, is trying to be as experimental and open to different things in downtown to make sure we can finally revitalize Granville the way you want it to be. Yeah, I think it's about the city being flexible about uses, which traditionally zoning and development has not been. And so, like, keep the creative idea ideas coming because it would be really interesting to see if this turned into a, a really great sort of adult creative local food court for example you see one in portland um you know at mara batali's italy in new york um you can have a number Ridge, of different... i think is doing that too one of those really sort of it's yeah. it's it it's affordable it's uh they're like food courts but they're a bit more higher end than your average a little food bit court. more experiential you yeah. can f- and feature some of your local restaurateurs it's a good chance for them to showcase their um perhaps open it up to arts and culture space uh, local retailers could become a tech hub mm-hmm. in combination with an experiential piece like that, um, you know, uh, Ken Sim has talked about really wanting to embrace technology, um, looking for a great space. So I, I think that uh, what we want to do is be flexible about what we could permit there, as opposed to just having a, a dead, empty space that's not serving the downtown. Sarah, thank you. Thank you. Vancouver has confirmed that it's walking away from its uh, years-long commitment to pay workers a living wage, uh, following uh, a vote that was that was uh, behind closed doors. Now, uh, the living wage uh, is essentially what it would take. Uh, for a family of four to live comfortably or at least have uh, basic needs covered, food, shelter, clothing, uh, daycare, all of that. Uh, So a mom and dad and two kids, a family of four essentially. Uh, It is determined by the Living Wage for Families BC organization. Now for this year, the rate is $24.08 per hour Uh, in Metro Vancouver. And that's about a 17% increase from last year, uh, which is the largest year-over-year jump that has been recorded. Now, 
if you think about it. Uh, inflation uh, explains a lot of that. Now, the decision was made behind closed doors, and the city did say uh, that it was uh, difficult to administer uh, such these annual changes for an organization like the city of Vancouver. Joining me now to talk about uh, the city uh, saying that it wouldn't be uh, participating in the living wage um, program is Anastasia French, Provincial Manager of Living Wage for Families BC. Anastasia, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Why is this important in your mind that the city of Vancouver, a city that has unions, a city that pays benefits, a city that provides pensions, why is the loss of the city in this program an important thing in your mind? The city of Vancouver was Canada's largest living wage municipality. And over the years, they did an amazing job of encouraging lots of other employers and municipalities and businesses to also pay their staff a living wage. And so we're really disappointed that they're walking away from this commitment. Um, In particular, the the workers that are really impacted are those that are contracted workers. So they're non-unionized. They don't necessarily get any benefits. And they're the workers who were vital to keeping the city running during the pandemic and beyond. They're the cleaners, the security guards, people like that that are now not going to be able to know if they're going to be able to make rent or pay for food going forward. But just to confirm here, no city of Vancouver employee, full-time employee, makes less than $24 an hour? That's my that's my understanding, yeah. So what you're talking about are, are the employees who work for businesses that have contracts with the city of Vancouver? Yeah. Yeah, these are people who are working on behalf of the city, but not directly. So can the city not still say, look, we want want to encourage you to pay um, uh, your employees $24.08 minimum when you do business with the city? They absolutely can. And there are are municipalities across the province that are stepping up and doing the same thing. The city of Victoria, Port Coquitlam, Quinnell, as well as other large employers, um, they're grappling with this difficult rise and they're making it work. Uh, And we did say to the city if they needed more time, we would be happy to work with them to to give them a few extra months to bring staff up to the living wage. And instead of doing that, they've decided to to go with a completely different um, number instead. Uh, What... um I'm, I'm trying to understand the city of Vancouver. Like I said, it has uh, a set a set wages, and as you've said, everybody is paid more than twenty four dollars and eight cents. So they're already paying the living wage. They provide benefits, uh, health and dental. I'm assuming uh, they provide pensions. In many cases, in the public sector, those are defined benefit pension plans that mostly are not offered in the private sector anymore. Is this the priority for your organization or do you think it should be more private sector employers and and, and other sectors rather than just uh, government? Well, the role that the City of Vancouver and many other municipalities, and in fact, even the BC government can do, is that by employing, they employ people as cleaners or as security guards to do this vital work on behalf of the city. Mm-hmm. And it goes through it goes through other companies. So by being a living wage employer, you commit to paying both your direct staff and your contracted workers a living wage. Now, often for, for municipalities, actually, their direct staff are already earning the living wage. So actually, it's less of an impact on them. But the big impact of being a living wage employer and the big difference you're making to people's lives is those contracted workers. Um, and you can put clauses in those contracts to make sure that while working for you, so while they're cleaning city properties, while they're guarding city properties, while they're doing all that, they're earning a living wage for that. While they're looking after the city, they're making sure that they can afford to live in the city. Mm-hmm. But there are some, I guess, administrative challenges here as well. Like If you say in a year that the living wage rate has gone up 17% and you have a, a governments that generally have set um, the contracts with unions, it's hard to just bring in a 17% increase. How do you do that when you have set pay grids 
and pay increases with unions already? So we, we, we work with unions to do that and um, exemptions can be made for collective agreements. Often um, with the contracts, when we're talking about cleaning and security guards, the clause in the contract is that you, pay, you will agree to pay your staff the living wage. And so the living wage changes every year and so it's kind of vague with that but the living wage as set by by us. Um, and then they can they sometimes um, municipalities will kind of pay on top and they'll pay the extra amount to make sure that money is then transferred onto the workers. I think the other thing to note is when we when we say that um, with the living wage employer, the living wage can also be made up of other benefits as well. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that the staff have to take home $24 an hour, but if for example that cleaning company, that security guard firm, they offered health and dental, then that lowers their living wage a little bit as well by that and it's not that they have to give a 17 percent pay increase to absolutely all of their staff but just making sure those folks on the bottom are brought up the increase this year it was substantial and we know that it might affect more than one pay grade so it might not just be the people at the bottom being brought up it might be the people above them uh, there are ways to work through it and there are ways that the, the other cities have managed to work through it and are making sure that they can anyone working for those cities are earning a living wage mm-hmm. do you think that in, rather than focusing on the city of vancouver that we collectively as a society and in your organization as that's been advocating this be be pushing the provincial government to say let's work towards raising the minimum wage rather than having a living wage and you have different private sector and public sector employers let's work towards a living wage for the entire province now that is challenging many small businesses already having difficulty with the, the minimum wage that has that was implemented by this NDP government and there are built-in increases with inflation every year uh, many people in broadly British communities would like would like that, and even even those small businesses say they are struggling with that, and I understand that. But shouldn't that be the focus of let's work on a broad uh, based living wage increase for all of British Columbia, rather than sort of uh, some public sector employers and some private sector employers? We, we advocate for both. When the minimum wage goes up, that helps all workers, and it's fantastic when that happens. Uh, and we encourage the provincial government to, to continue to lift the minimum wage. And when that gap between the minimum wage and the living wage is so substantial, it gets really hard. And that's why places like the city of Vancouver are really struggling, because that gap is so big and so substantial. So absolutely, the minimum wage does need to be lifted. But the living wage is also an opportunity for employers to step up and to say they're doing better, to differentiate differentiate themselves from others. And it's kind of a, it's an option thing for employers to do and we stand up and we applaud those employers that do pay a living wage. It's just really disappointing when you get a, an organisation the size of the city of Vancouver that, that then walk away from that commitment and the impact that that's going to have on those workers. Anastasia, thank you for your time today. No worries. If you're just joining us, uh, during the first hour we had talked about Nordstrom's closing. All 13 of its stores across Canada will be shut down by late uh, June. The retail space downtown, 230,000 square feet, uh, lots of space. Not sure what's going to go in, but uh, we were talking to Sarah Kirby Young about the revitalization of Granville Street and what impact uh, the shutting down of uh, Nordstrom will have. Do call us on a buzz line, 604-331-2899. That's 604-331-2899. Joining me now is our producer, Stephen Chang, who also has been nosing around uh, Nordstrom's uh, earlier today, talking to folks, uh, and uh, he joins us now. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Jazz. So you popped down to the store and uh, talked to um, uh, Vancouverites about their thoughts on Nordstrom, and uh, and he did a little bit, little bit more nosing around as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a nosy boy, exactly. <laughs> I've been going around the city. I uh, just wanted to talk to some people in the street to see what their thoughts are on uh, Nordstrom 
closing. Mm-hmm. And uh, here's some clips of uh, some of the people I've talked to in the street here. I'm sure you've heard Nordstrom's closing. What are your thoughts on that? It's quite devastating because, you know, Nordstrom is a staple here in Vancouver, especially, you know, in the city full of fashion. You know, in a business perspective, I guess it's just, it's, it's better for the company. Well, for, for us here in Canada, we still have whole rent through. So as long as it's still standing, then I think we're good. Um, honestly, it doesn't really bother me too much. I'm excited to see what's going in there, though. I'm very upset and I'm very angry. This is one of my favorite stores, one of my shortcuts. I live in downtown. That was a sanity that uh, brought, was brought to me during the pandemic. And it's a beautiful place and a beautiful space. And it's almost like a gallery, right? Even if you can't afford to buy anything, you can look at the beautiful things you can touch. I'm also worried about downtown and I'm also worried about our world class uh, city status. So what is this becoming? Are we going to get another winner or Zellers? Or <laughs> I'm a bit sad, but I, I don't really mind that much. I don't really shop there very often. Well, it's kind of sad to see it go. You know, not that I shop there a lot. So, yeah. But then you have to wonder what's going to happen to the space. Who's going to go in? We're voting for Ikea. <laughs> <laughs> Ikea. Sounds about right. It's funny. Nordstrom has said that they have, in their time in Canada, they have never made money. Yeah. So even in, in your comments that you had the first gentleman there who obviously very much focused on fashion and uh, he liked the place. And I, I think there's a couple other callers who, who liked the place. They did shop there. Even if they didn't shop there, they love sort of the, the broad experience in Nordstrom. And then the, the, the others that said, I never shopped there. I'm not going to miss it. I'm very curious as what's going to be next. So lots of opportunity, I, I would guess. But I think we've run out of big major... Um, you know, big box outlets, uh, higher end that can go in there. I don't even know who, what what's missing now in Vancouver, or that that, that or a store that isn't that is uh, maybe from another city that that isn't here already. I can't even think of one. Yeah, that's the thing, Jazz. Like from what the people were saying, that there's a there's like a mixed bag of emotions about Nordstrom closing, and there's also different needs because prices are going up in the city, as you know. Uh, so there's definitely different opinions on what how they feel about Nordstrom closing, and there's um there's actually different uh, thoughts of what could come next in uh, in this building what space I, here. What yeah. I find what I find interesting also though is that people sometimes forget as much as we think of downtown and and high end, we do not in this city. And we have to go back to this, make New York salaries. Mm-hmm. We in this city don't make London uh, UK salaries. We like to think we're world class, but we don't make those high end world class salaries. I think the average salary is about seventy thousand a year. So perhaps one hundred and fifty dollars joggers isn't where the main demographic of Vancouver is, as much as we like to think. There are a small group of people, I think. So maybe that's the clientele. Clientele they're after. We may not have enough of that clientele to keep some of these businesses uh, up and running, especially when you can spend a lot of those dollars online. There's only so many spaces. I, for me personally, you know, there's about twenty four, twenty five hundred employees that are going to lose their job, and and uh, it must have been a shock for them. Yeah, speaking of employees, actually, Jazz, uh, I managed to talk to one employee who was on his break. Uh, his name is Dylan. He's one of the employees of the uh, one of the boutiques inside the store. Uh, he's got some interesting comments here about how um, how the vibe was in the store and how people reacted when they found out about the news. Uh, here's what he said: I think it's disgusting what they're saying or what, how they did it because. Uh, we were notified. They just went straight to the media. And then now they're saying, like, by the end of the month, basically, they're going to be, like, fully liquidating things, so we're not even going to have jobs by then. Everyone in here is, like, freaking out. Like, there was even people who got laid off. Uh, they were working yesterday, and they got, like, told, don't come into work tomorrow. You don't have a job anymore. Oh, my God. In, like, yeah. less than 24 hours. So, no, it's disgusting. I, I am just, like, despised by the brand right now. It's just repulsive. 
I guess when when you're going into creditor protection, particularly with uh, shareholders, there's only so much you can say until it's done. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I feel bad for the employees, uh, but uh, there must have been a better way to handle it rather than hearing about it uh, through the news. And news folks are just doing their job. Uh, But, you know, these things are never uh, easy and uh, they're emotional. And I don't think it's going to be easy for the ones that are there because here's the other thing. People are going to start looking around. The question's already out there. When's the sale? When's the sale? You know, that kind of thing. I think the website shut down as of yesterday. Yeah. And so they'll be liquidating now. But, uh, you know, I feel bad for them because it's a, it's a real tough environment right now. I know people say there's lots of jobs out there. I get that. But losing your job is losing your job and the security that, that, that comes from with it. But I'm sure there's lots of folks now going, what next? Yeah, exactly. Well, liquidation, first of all, is uh, what's going to happen next. So they're just waiting for court approval before um, they proceed with that, which might be around uh, at the end of the month, at the end of the March. And uh, after that, well, what's going to happen with this building here? Uh, the same people who I interviewed have some opinions about that. Ah, the Saks Fifth, that would be good in there. Maybe, I don't know, maybe one that's a bit of a lower price point, maybe, might do better. A cinema, maybe? I mean, this is this establishment is really big. Um, so I think they could, you know, divide the spaces, um, maybe a Walmart. We don't have any Walmart in downtown. I would like to see Nordstrom again. I would like to see the, the Saks Fifth Avenue. I would like to see something really high end. I don't think high end's going to work, and especially with with Hudson's Bay next door. And yeah. they've done they put up the, the you know they've got the history here, and they're going through a massive redevelopment uh, as well a, a, re, uh, a real estate development there, and it'll have a completely different look as, as Sarah Kirby Young was saying. Uh, but you know uh, that that's the thing we got people living downtown. If you go to the suburbs, you're going to have your big mall. You got your Staples stores, but you got the WalMarts that are available, the Costco's that are there. They already have a Costco downtown, but a Walmart might work very well. We keep forgetting there are families living downtown. There are uh, many other folks, uh, you know, different families, different types of families living downtown, and maybe that's what we want. We get, uh, go back to my original point: we're not making New York and uh, London type salaries. And I think whatever goes in there, whether it's a, a retail outlet or even a, um, a, a company, just got to remind ourselves if it is a retail company, uh, retail um, space, then it better be able to speak to everyday people. But, you know, look, look at all the space that we need now for um, tech. I think it's seven or 8,000 Amazon spaces opening up here in the downtown core. You can see Microsoft expanding, Apple, many other smaller companies as well. I could see that thing broken up a little bit and turn it into office space. Definitely could be. And um, I, among all those options, I do think Walmart's the best, uh, the best one there because it is more cost effective, especially with people, um, how much we can afford nowadays in this city. Uh, but don't be surprised in October if a spirit Halloween takes over that space for a little bit. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Jazz. Well, dozens of BC organizations, advocates, uh, and academics uh, joined forces just yesterday to send an urgent plea for the provincial government to legislate pay equity and close the gender gap. Uh, There were 128 signatories to this March 2nd letter. Uh, It was addressed to uh, Premier Eby and, of course, uh, his key cabinet ministers that uh, they want uh, a law that is enshrined for the responsibility of all employers to identify and close gaps in pay for work of equal value. Now, uh, this has been a long-time conversation in regards to pay equity Uh, and closing that gap. Now, Stats Canada says that in 2018, that women in BC made about 18% less to do the same job as men. Joining me now to talk a little bit about pay equity is Hamira Jabir. Uh, She's a staff lawyer at the West Coast Legal Education and Action Fund. Hamira, thank you for joining us today. 
Thank you so much for having us. Why is this important now? I mean, we have been making some strides. Uh, is it a case of where we were just sort of stuck and not haven't been moving very much in the last little while in regards to closing that gap? Certainly. I think we are definitely stuck here in D.C. Other jurisdictions have taken action even decades ago to implement legislation, to take steps to really work on the gender pay gap and have a conversation about it as well with employers and and across our workforces. But that's not really what's happening in B.C., and it's time that we had that conversation. The reason we're bringing this forward now is a year ago, um, on International Women's Day, the B.C. government said they would bring forward pay transparency legislation. And so what we want to see is pay equity legislation. And it's important to have a conversation about what the options are to address this issue. When you say pay transparency legislation, how would that work once the government does uh, present that? How, in your mind, in regards to your conversation with government, how would that work? Yes, so the government has said it's working on pay transparency. And what we we don't know what that looks like yet because it hasn't been brought forward and, and uh, it's not in, in place yet. But what we expect it could be is legislation that would require employers of a certain size to report on what the pay uh, differences are in their organizations for for similar types of work. But the challenge with pay transparency and why we think more is needed is that it's just information. It doesn't do anything to actually change the problem, to, to address the problem. And it would still put the onus on employees and workers to have to advocate for themselves to be paid equally. Whereas a pay equity approach really puts the onus on government and employers to work together to start shifting the systems that are keeping people in a, in a situation of discriminatory pay. How would this legislation work? Even pay transparency, I'm trying to wrap my head around it, is a question of yeah. you report what your employees broadly, uh, let's say in one sec- section of your, uh, uh, your uh, with your employer, this is what our XY assistants make. or and, and would that be shared with the government? Would that be posted on a website? How would that work? Yes. So we, uh, in the letter, set out sort of what we're thinking of in terms of how this data can be collected and who should hold the data. And that includes taking into consideration privacy considerations about the data. Uh, what we're thinking is that it's important to have disaggregated data. And what that means is that we want to look at different social identities. So it would be matching up different social identities, people with um, who are doing similar types of work. And that means looking at who has a similar skill level in an organization, similar level of responsibility, similar working conditions, and how are people being paid who have these different social identities? So this is something that exists in other jurisdictions. It sounds like a, I know it sounds big, but it's happening in Europe and and in other jurisdictions, and it can make a difference. Is it, and and certainly we want everybody to be paid the same, but how do you practically administer this? There's going to be, there will be employees, men and women, who say, look, I negotiate my contract. Uh, That's uh, up to my skill set, my education, and my ability to negotiate. I don't want that to be made public. Um, There are others that may agree, but want that privacy of their salary to be private. How do you compel employers uh, to do that? Yeah, so it's important to remember this isn't, I know, like, uh, there's sunshine lists and so in, in other provinces where individuals are listed with their pay. That's not what this legislation really is. It's more about reporting about how individuals of certain identities who are doing similar work are being paid. So it wouldn't be 
your name is out there and your, they, your, uh, your pay is attached to that. This is really about looking at how an organization distributes its pay based off of those who are doing similar types of work. In this day and age, uh, men or women, I think everybody wants uh, people to be paid the same. When, you, when I mentioned that, that number, 18%, women making 18% less, what is causing this? Because if you started two employees at the same starting wage, same job, a man and a woman, they would be paid the same. Where is this discrepancy of where women are paid 18% less? How, how does that occur in, in your mind? Well, there are a lot of structural factors for that. But the, what we're focused on is that we have to, it's not about intentional, intentionally being discriminatory, but there are there's systemic discrimination where there are unconscious biases that influence where someone even starts at in terms of their salary. So if, if two people with the same skill set are starting at a different spot, then that's going to impact their entire career. Um, and that's where there's a lot of structural aspects to how people are paid differently. And that's why it's important to look at it at a systemic level. Thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Hey, welcome back to the show. I was thinking back to uh, my first week uh, back here at CKNW. I was on with Simi Sarah in the morning, and she was just asking me uh, different questions uh, for the audience to get to know jazz. One of the, the questions she asked me, I recall, was, um, what Canucks jersey do you like best? And, and personally, I like the Orca uh, jersey myself, but if you ask uh, you know, uh, Canuck fans, it's incredibly divergent. Uh, it's some like the, the old hockey sticks, some like to skate, so many different to choose from, so many different designs to choose from, each one representing a different era. Uh, joining me now is our producer, Ryan Lee Hall, who has been looking into this rumor about the Canucks potentially looking for a new logo or bringing one back. Welcome, Ryan. How's it going, Jazz? Uh, it's going very well. Uh, I got to tell you, this this particular segment is very popular among a lot of sports fans here at CKNW today. Explain to me how this rumor started. What, what's the conversation right now? Well, this rumor started maybe, I want to say, a few months ago. As you know, the Vancouver Canucks have brought back their skate jersey, the black one, as an official third jersey for this year. And they've kind of been going really heavy on that uh, throughout this second half of the season. Uh, A lot of the locker room stuff now has kind of been starting to get changed towards that skate jersey. And from what I found on Twitter, I just found this out recently, uh, they've actually uh, filed a trademark for kind of a newer updated version of the skate logo. And they just filed that actually. It was February 24th. Uh, 2023, which just kind of you know adds to the fuel of this little rumor and all and all the speculation. Could they potentially be ditching the orca and going back to the skate jersey? Now, again, a lot of fans. It's pretty popular with a lot of fans. It you know, brings back that whole nostalgia of the uh, 1990s, the mid 90s there, and that 94 run. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do got to say, per, like personally myself, I kind of like what they currently have. The blue orca, yeah. the blue really pops on TV. Absolutely. Uh, and the orca, it's such a you know intricate logo. There's a lot of design. It's There's iconic. Lot, and it's really detailed and yeah. whatnot. Uh, I did, however, catch up with the uh, creator of the very first ever Canucks logo, which is, of course, that blue and green stick and rink logo, right? Yeah. His name is uh, Joseph Borovich. He does live over in uh, West Vancouver. And uh, I did, I just kind of asked him, you know, what does he think about, you know, a potential change to the skate? He's the one that developed the first one. Uh, how does he feel about a change? And, well, I asked him just first of all, like, how did this even start? How did you even come up with this logo? 
when I heard that the Canucks were coming into town, I decided to uh, come up with a logo, and I made a presentation. And, of course, when you want to go to a new company to get uh, get in, in the door, you go to their public relations guy. And I went to Greg Douglas. Bud Poyle was the general manager, and Greg um, gave it to Mr. Poyle, and uh then Greg called me back and said, look, Joe, the owners from Minneapolis, Tom Skellen, are coming to Vancouver at the Vancouver Hotel, and they're they're looking at uh, people for doing designs and stuff. And, I, and he, he said, why don't you take it over to them? And um, I said, okay. So I made an appointment, and I met them at the uh, Vancouver Hotel. And when I walked in on the floor, they had all kinds of designs all over the floor from various people, and I had no idea that this must have been a contest because I never, um, I, I didn't hear anything about a contest. And I didn't do it for that reason. I did it because I was a hockey fan and I enjoyed the Canucks uh, when they were in, NH- in the Western Hockey League. And of course, I was elated when they got a contract to go to the NHL. So I, I showed them uh, the thing and, uh, and then I left um, the presentation that I made. And um, I guess it was what a almost a month later when Greg phoned me up and said, Joe, they want to see you again. They want to go ahead with it. Well, I wanted to bring bring in um, the three elements, which is uh, the letter C for uh, Canucks, the hockey stick, and the overall shape was the hockey rink. And so I had three elements of, of what was going on. And I've been taught to uh, try and, um, whenever you do a logo for a company, you try and get as many meanings or many situations that the company does just by looking at their, uh, their, their logo. And that's where that came from. A lot of people didn't see the C, the letter C, with the hockey stick going into the rink like that but then finally they got they got used to it and some people liked it and some people didn't and but it stuck there and now it's 53 years and it's still on there i suggested blue and green to begin with because of the colors being our west coast here blue and green look outside now and everything's either trees or water or whatever or snow <laughs> blue and green jazz I, they are good and those are the colors of i guess this cascadia region if you do google the cascadia flag it, yeah. it's blue white and and uh, green i did have to ask joseph as well as when they first kind of went to that skate logo like how did that really make you feel Hoping they lose every game that they play when they got it, and I never even watched them. I was so peeved, pardon the expression, peeved off anyways. It hurt a lot. It hurt a lot because it was like, uh, you know, pound in the head kind of thing. But when they brought it back, Seattle people uh, bought it, and they brought it back for the shoulders and that, and uh, that's where Naslin was here. But I was thankful that the Sedins played in my uniform. Yeah, so they did bring it back eventually as a shoulder patch when uh, Orca Bay did take over. Yeah. Um, again, just a quick note here about Joseph. He actually did write a letter to the uh, owner of the Vancouver Canucks, Francesco Aquilini. This was around November, December-ish, Christmas time, mm-hmm. uh, about the jerseys and in terms of why they keep sort of changing the logo, why they keep changing the colors. Stick to one, he says. Like, we've changed it way too many times. Haven't won anything. There was nothing wrong with the original, which was his. Yeah. Why do we keep changing it? I can, Jazz. When you look in the crowd over at Rogers Arena, there's a bunch of different colors out there that you see, right? You see yeah. a lot of blue, see a lot of green, see a lot of black and yellow. Just stick to one. Uh, so moving forward, going back to the trademark question, uh, any sense of where we're going with this? Uh, no. You know what? Not really. There's still just a lot of rumors circulating around Twitter. This just kind of really highlighted that, hey, maybe they're trying to do something because there has been a movement within the last, I would say, even five, six years from fans. Hashtag free the skate. You see it a lot. People love that jersey, and that's something we could be seeing within the next, I want to say, probably for next season. You know, Did you ask see- Joseph that, which one he liked? Oh, of course his own. 
He liked his own. There was nothing wrong with it, he says. And you know what? That is an iconic Canucks logo. When you think of the Vancouver Canucks, you still think blue and green. You still think the stick and rink. But I like what he said. Stick to one and stick with it uh, consistently. And then there's a tendency to bring in jerseys back and forth. It does make money, and I get all that. But it's uh, it's the, the right thing to do. I think yeah. he's right. The uh, classic teams never change. Toronto, absolutely. Montreal, Boston, Philly. There you go. Ryan, thank you. No problem. Well, the Earth is now about 1.1% uh, degrees Celsius warmer than it was in the 1800s. Based on current projections, global temperatures will rise by about 2.7 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. Now, it's impossible to predict exactly how long-term shifts in temperatures and weather patterns will affect our planet's uh, ecosystems, but changes in one area can influence changes in other areas, and animals will feel that impact. Now, sea levels are rising and oceans are becoming warmer, longer, more intense droughts threaten crops, wildlife, and freshwater supplies. Uh, from polar bears in the Arctic to, to marine turtles off the coast of Africa, our planet's diversity of life is at risk from the changing climate. Now, today, the UN marks World Wildlife Day. Now, recently, UBC uh, zoology professor, Dr. Caitlin Gaynor, uh, co-authored a paper in Nature Climate Change with colleagues at the University of Washington that describes the different ways in which climate change is leading to more conflict between humans and animals around the globe. Uh, she joins us now. Dr. Gaynor is an assistant professor at the Department of Zoology and Botany at UBC. Dr. Gaynor, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, how does climate change increase human-wildlife conflict? So through both directional change, you know, changes in temperature and, um, you know, sea levels, uh, environments are changing all over the world. And as a result, animals are changing where they're going, what they're doing as they're seeking out uh, food. And people are also changing what we're doing as we're adapting to changes in, in the climate. And these changes by both animals and people are bringing us into greater contact with each other and greater conflict with each other. Hmm. Uh- what sort of um, conflicts are you seeing here in Canada? So what we're seeing a lot is it, a lot of what's happening um, and what we found in our kind of global analysis was was up in the Arctic. So changes mm. in the timing of sea ice freeze or just the extent of sea ice means that uh, animals like polar bears are spending more time on land um, and eating more garbage and coming into contact and conflict with people. Um, and, you know, we're also seeing as that sea ice is melting, that uh, shipping lanes are open and people are changing their behavior and uh, you know, shipping and uh, ships are going out into new areas and coming into conflict with animals that previously haven't been exposed to vessels. So, yeah, the sea ice is a big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, in regards to more urban areas, are you seeing changes there as well in that conflict? Yeah, there. I mean, there's increasing conflict between humans and wildlife in urban areas. I would say less so mediated by you know the direct impacts of climate, but just as a result of kind of scarcity of habitat uh, around urban areas, animals are are seeking out resources in human dominated areas, and and again coming into conflict with people. Uh, what do you think we need to, to do to address this? I know the broader issue of just uh, you know making sure that the, the Earth doesn't get warmer, and that's going to come through policies uh, from carbon tax taxes to, to our, our transformation to EVs, but just, a, a, you know, an economy that is not powered by, by carbon. Um, but in regards to just addressing and perhaps helping these animals, what kind of things are we doing enough to address some of these things that you've been talking about? 
Yeah, I mean, you raise a great point that, of course, you know, preventing climate change is key, but it's happening. And so thinking about strategies to adapt and mitigate um, that involve an understanding of wildlife behavior will be key in reducing these human-wildlife conflicts. So by understanding how animals are changing their movement and distributions in response to local environmental change, we can, can better anticipate where conflict might occur and mitigate it. And this is something that um, some of my colleagues have done uh, off of the coast of California by understanding how uh, whales, for example, change their migration patterns and feeding habits and responses to changes in local ocean climates. Um, the areas can be kind of set aside for uh, whale protection and, and uh, reduce the risk that uh, fishing vessels will come into contact with those whales. So mm-hmm. close areas for fishing. So, yeah. It's not too late, is it? No, it's definitely not. Good, I think um, I'm an think optimist by nature. So. Be <laughs> yeah. Well, the reason I say that is just it's we we have we're in a, we're in a time and place where we are the temperature is warming up based on just our past practices, and the faster we move to address them, and it's very difficult to be the first one to say it, being an elected office, it's hard to make these changes that can fundamentally. Uh, you know, move all of us collectively to a better, cleaner place. Um, but do you think we need to move even faster now in regards to even addressing not just the, the issues of animals, but the biodiversity as well? Yes, of course. I mean, I, I think that we're already, we're going to continue in the future be dealing with the decisions that we've made in the past. And if we continue kind of do um, the path that we're on, um, that's just going to kind of set us on on this bad path even further into the future. So uh, certainly, but I think I think there's reason to hope. I think that, you know, increasingly people are aware of the impacts of climate change on biodiversity. And as we understand more and more about how ecosystems function and respond to changes in the climate, we can kind of better design uh, adaptation and mitigation strategies in parallel with our efforts to reduce climate change. Uh, in regards to um, moving policy quickly, uh, governments moving quickly to help animals, is there a jurisdiction you think that, that does it well? I mean, I think that there's been a lot of good conversation happening in, in BC and Canada around how to better protect species at risk and um, and kind of prioritize biodiversity conservation along with, with human needs. And and I, I think that, that things have been moving in the right direction. We just need to keep keep continue doing that. Mm-hmm. Dr. Gainer, thank you so much for your time. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much. Well, we've had another week of opinions, experts, open line, wisdom, and hot takes. It's that time to bring together our dynamic duo to help explain the week that was. It's time for The Wrap. Goodbye now. It's over. That's all. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. It's Friday, and this is The Wrap on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's This week, we look at the death of Nordstrom in Canada, and does anybody actually shop at department stores, and where would you move if money wasn't an issue? Joining us today is our regular rap panel, Leah Halive is a TV reporter and radio host, and Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in South Surrey. She's an author and broadcaster as well. Leah, Sarah, welcome. Hi, guys. TGIF, my friend. TGIF. Well, maybe not for Nordstrom's, but yes. (laughs) 
<laughs> Nordstrom's <laughs> well, announced yesterday. Maybe Nordstrom matters, for sure. Yeah. Probably TGI, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Well, Nordstrom's announced its departure from Canada yesterday. Uh, they are shutting down all 13 of their stores, six Nordstrom stores, seven uh, Nordstrom rack locations, <laughs> 2,300 jobs lost. Uh, we have a beautiful facility here in downtown Vancouver, 230,000 square feet of retail space. Now will be uh, um, empty, I guess, by the end of June. We went out, actually, out on the streets here in Vancouver and asked people what, what they'd like to see to replace Nordstrom. Take a listen. Ah, a Saks Fifth, that would be good in there. Maybe, I don't know, maybe one that's a bit of a lower price point maybe might do better. A cinema maybe? I mean, this is this establishment is really big. Um, so I think they could, you know, divide the spaces. Um, maybe a Walmart. We don't have any Walmart oh, in downtown. I would like to see Nordstrom again. I would like to see the, the Saks Fifth Avenue. I would like to see something really high end. And you have to wonder what's going to happen to the space. Who's going to go in? We're voting for IKEA. <laughs> Ikea, Ikea, there yeah. you go. Well, Leah, let me go to you first. Your thoughts on this. I mean, uh, are, does it matter anymore? Do, 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 do uh, department stores matter anymore in the sense that everything is available online? Something, you know, it's it's hard to be something for anybody, everybody these days in these big stores. Does it matter? Well, it's funny because like, okay, so I like to shop online. I do. Uh, but I also like to go into the mall because I like to try on certain things. But I was thinking about it and I'm like, I don't really go into the big department stores like the Bay, you know, Sear- like I just don't. I like to go into like little, you know, stores like Guess and Lululemon and stuff like that. So I always thought growing up that they were for grandmas, you know, like my Baba loved to go to Sears. She loved to go to Kmart, what? Zellers, right? So for me, I never would go into the bay or anything like that i always thought it was for like older older people not you sarah i am going to hunt you down i am going to (laughs) hunt you down i just don't shop in those stores but i go to the mall but i just don't shop in the big older people not you i wasn't saying you're watch it (laughs) young lady i never said you were old and i never said you shop there we know you don't shop there do you shop there and i do you do shop there right at nordstrom i do Nordstrom, I, yes, I like but the Bay. Do you go to the Bay? Do I go to the Bay? Well, there's the difference between the there, there's a difference between the Bay downtown and the suburban bays. Yeah, um, How, I will say that. So, in what way? And I, I, I mean, I, I, and this is coming from somebody who just realized that there's no more Oak Ridge. So you know, I mean, we're really <laughs> <I'm> not. <gone. laughs> but I, mean, I got I got to hand it to. Somebody pointed that out to me. Somebody pointed that out to me a couple like, a couple months back. I said something about Oak Ridge. They said, "Well, it's gone." They're like, and I'm like, "What? Really? It's totally oh, gone." <laughs> well, it's it's <laughs> no it's idea. there. It's there. Just redo. They're completely redoing it. They're going to yeah. have a higher end a food court and everything. I guess that's the thing is, we're, we've run out of department stores. If Nordstrom's is gone, like who else can really move in? We've but got. You know, yep. My More mom, sellers. my mom, the, the, my my mom, the brilliant Trishy, brilliant Trishy Dumoulin. She suggested that what they should do is. Um, move in like the high-end retailers, like the Gucci's, the Prada's, all that kind of yes. stuff. And have them in different departments all the way through. You keep them in one area. You keep that sort of high-end, um, you know, anchor in the downtown core. Now, obviously, a lot of those shops are now on parts of Robson, but mostly in Alberni. But you could mm-hmm. open up that stretch of Alberni maybe to more restaurants, more sort of like walking fair. But if you if you took that building and literally made it into compartmentalized inside high-end shopping yeah. you would actually generate people coming year round too because well, of the weather right yeah. that's the one thing you can't find. that's the one thing you cannot find in the suburbs you're not going to find 
Like you will in the states, but in Canada, you're not going to find a Prada outfit outlet in Langley. It's yeah, not no, that that no. is true. The part of things <laughs> no. we have to remind ourselves is that we don't make New York and London type salaries. I got a I got a text here from no. one of our listeners. It says Jazz, I went into Nordstrom's about ten years ago just to look around. She says in quotes, saw a cute little knit, not cashmere or, or uh, angora waist length sweater. Price tag. I literally gas, never would make that kind of money, would never pay that. Well, thank you for that uh, text, Barbie. Uh, And, (laughs) um, but she's got a point. Like, it, 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 we have a certain sort of price point in this city. We convince ourselves world class, world class. We don't make those kinds of salaries. And that's part of the problem. If you have it downtown, though, Jazz, then you're, it's the tourists that come, right? That are staying downtown that are going to shop there. That's what you're going to do. That's what you're going to get, right? And and there's a certain thing now that, like, a lot of people, they will see something online. So, you know, it used to be that you had to buy through the Canadian retailer. And because Canada is what, like just shy of 40 million people, yeah. the United States mm-hmm. is like nine times the population. I mean, I remember going shopping in New York City and the selection is just, you know, fabulous. But it's a much yeah. smaller audience here. Now people are able to shop for those things online. But there's always going to be uh, like a, a reason to have those sort of high-end outlets. Vancouver is a very expensive city and, and there's some people that have a lot of money and that whole building i think if compartmentalized into like sort of high-end realtor real uh, not realtors sorry but high-end retailers <laughs> yeah that that could actually be a really good thing yeah i mean it is a beautiful building too i mean i gotta hand it to them they spent money on that building before yeah. i had that old eaton's uh, white facade that ted field uh, told me a couple <laughs> yeah. hours ago that alan fotheringham so famously said looks like a giant urinal at one point with oh, a big white God. facade <laughs> he's right nice. he's right so i gotta yeah. i gotta hand it to them too bad they they couldn't stay they didn't make money but uh they yeah. They're still in, in the States. They're doing Oh, fine. yeah, they're fine. So. But they, they, cleaned, yeah. they cleaned up the neighborhood. The building is fabulous. We'll find somebody, that's for sure. Okay, folks, well, coming up next, where would you move to if money wasn't an issue? That's next. Welcome back, folks. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to our Friday rap panel. Leah Halim is a TV reporter and radio host. And Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in South Surrey. She's an author and broadcaster uh, herself. We were talking about, uh, of course, Nordstrom shutting down. Our next topic is one that appeared in the New York Times last week. They did a rather lengthy um, a story on the challenges of moving. Uh, there was a recent survey done uh, by Homebay, which is a real estate advice website, in, and they asked Americans, if you could move without worrying about costs, where would you move to? So people, the number one choice was Los Angeles. So you could imagine big city, nice weather, Hollywood. Number two was Atlanta. I said, okay, nice weather as well. Uh, can get hot in the summer, of course. Austin, Texas, you got some culture, you got some good, decent weather, Las Vegas, Miami, New York, uh, Boston, Dallas, which I call it kind of understood Dallas, a big city, decent weather, and of course, low taxes. The only one I didn't get was Baltimore. That was the last one out of the, <laughs> out of the top nine. So I want to ask our uh, rap panel, if money wasn't an issue and quality of life mattered uh, more than anything else, where would you, what Canadian city would you move to? And then may, perhaps what global city would you want to move to? So, let me, Leah, let me start with you first and foremost. If there was a city in Canada other than Vancouver, where would you oh. want to move to? <laughs> you okay. ruined it. Uh, you yeah, ruined it. exactly. I mean, in, I mean I, Vancouver is just a beautiful city. It just is. I mean, if you look throughout Canada, I mean, Montreal, maybe. Montreal's a cool city as well. Yeah. Um, maybe Niagara. I don't know. Like, I, I just, I would like to be West Coast, so wow. that's where I would, that's where I would stay. But if you're talking about globally, yeah. I have something that you guys are not going to guess at all. I would buy a massive 
super yacht, one that's 500 feet. I'm a Pisces. I love water. And I would literally drive oh around the world, yeah. right? I'd have a chef. I'd have maids. I'd have a helicopter. No oh, wow. property tax. I'm in. So that like, is so my like a, a low carbon life, kind of like Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, right. <laughs> when yeah. I dump in the ocean, yeah. you have no clue. It's yeah. all good. <laughs> well, there you go. So, so, so you're you don't you're not you're not a citizen of any place. You're just just bobbing no. out in the ocean. No property tax. No right? property taxes. Around, you got your go chef. Yeah. Well, right. You go to Fiji. about the property tax? <laughs> right. That's right. I don't need a real estate agent. I'm good. But Sarah could come along. Right. There Sarah you go. Everybody needs a real estate agent. Yeah, exactly. So, Sarah, where would you go in Canada if you had a choice besides Vancouver? Uh, it, it would have to be coast. It would have to be the coast. It would either be Victoria or somewhere on Vancouver Island or Halifax. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love okay. Halifax. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I that love one Halifax. It's very, Quiet. very pretty. And then you, you know, you know, and then you're you're just like if you want to go to Europe, it's just that much closer. Um, yeah, there you and go. if it was anywhere, <laughs> if it was anywhere in the world, it would probably be. I've got lots of friends in London, so it might be London. It probably be somewhere in Europe or somewhere like Australia or uh, New Zealand, which yeah, down you know, like something like so like something completely different. But again, you know, something that would be close to the ocean, like Brisbane or Sydney or something mm. like that, Melbourne. So, um, so uh, really, for our for Canada, we don't want to live in Alberta eastward, really, <laughs> except for Halifax. Like, I mean, we just went over this time zone you, after Jack? time zone. Where would you live? Yeah, I, I'm like, sorry, go ahead, Sarah. I've lived, in, I've lived in Toronto, and Toronto's great. The weather's mm-hmm. just not. I mean, Toronto's got yeah. so much going on. You know, there's just there's lots of culture. The there's lots of things going on. But, yeah, humidity and no. then people. I mean, you know, not. A, <laughs> all year round either like we often do here but at least it is a bit milder but yeah i gotta be i need i need to be near water yeah, yeah I, if it was me i would i'm i'm just I'm, I'm west coast as well it'd have to be somewhere on the island probably if it wasn't vancouver i'm not really interested in the rest yeah. of canada i mean toronto's a great city montreal's a fabulous city uh, the east coast yeah. is great but i think if you're gonna live anywhere in canada it would have to be on, on the west coast west globally, coast best coast yeah exactly right. globally i love great you know great you know world-class cities like i think uh I like San Francisco. I like London a lot. I like a lot mm-hmm. of cities in Asia too. I like the hustle and bustle. I like Tokyo a lot. I think that would be really good. But if I had to choose one, I'd probably choose London. Although the weather isn't great, but yeah. I'd, 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 I'd maybe I'd have to yeah. I'd have to catch a flight and nope, catch up nope. with uh, Leah somewhere on on her mega yacht. <laughs> I'll send my helicopter. Okay, nope. we'll pick you up. <laughs> <laughs> nobody picked anything. You know that nobody nobody to get like south of the border. Yeah, no, no. exactly. There, there's not, you know, it's it's funny. America's done that to itself. Like they're, they're, they're great cities, but it's just like LA you know what? was number one, wasn't it, on that list? For and I Americans. mean, have you seen LA traffic? Yeah. Like, give me a break. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> give me a break. It, it is not. It is not a, a fun place no. to be. That is for sure. Ladies, thank you so much. <laughs> have yourself a wonderful weekend. And fingers crossed, it doesn't snow this okay. weekend. Oh please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Leah. Fingers Thanks, crossed. Sarah. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.
For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.